So um, tonight I brought a friend with me, um, and I would like to speak tonight about your aliveness, the fact that you're alive, the fact that we're alive here, and how that aliveness is understood in Buddhist cosmology, how it's understood in terms of our human form, our body, what it means to be born as a human, the possibilities for human life, and the, um, the perspective of Buddhism, how Buddhism, where Buddhism places human life, how it values it, and how it understands the possibility for human life. And so what I have here is a very traditional teaching tool. This is the wheel of life, this is an uh, understanding of Buddhist cosmology that's depicted here in an artistic form. So what we have here is um, Yama. Yama is the Lord of Death. And so Yama is holding within his claws and he's embracing the wheel of life. This is the wheel of life. And within this wheel are six realms and they comprise the universe, the Buddhist universe. And these six realms, so I'm gonna, what I'd like to do is talk a little about Buddhist cosmology and these six realms of existence and then talk about the place of the human realm and then our own incarnation within this cosmology. And the six realms consist of the God realms, the heavenly realms, is one realm. Then there's the realm of what's called the Titans or the jealous gods. So there's the first God realm or the Brahma realm. Then there's the realm of the Titans. Then there's the human realm. Then there's the realm of animals, the animal realm. The realm of hungry ghosts and the, and the hell realm. And even within Buddhist cosmology, there's other more complicated ways they'll talk about this. They'll divide it up even more finely and more discreetly into the 32 planes of existence. I think we'll hold off on that for tonight. We'll stay with the six realms. I think it'll be most helpful for us. And this image, this tanka, this is a Buddhist religious painting, is a teaching tool. And you can see just by looking at it, it's engaging, it's interesting, it draws one in if one is to use it. It's also, especially if you're working with children and starting to teach them cosmology, this is a wonderful way to start to give them the imagery of cosmology. Um, the different realms, if you, uh, it could hear they're, they're basically these two upper realms, the, the Brahma realms and the realm of the Titans or the Asuras it's called. Um, there's the three lower realms, the animal realms, the, the hungry ghost realm and the, the hell realms. And then there's the human realm which is in between those two. And the teaching tool is a, a lot of it's about teaching karma teaching different ways that Buddhism understands the nature of reality, dependent origination, the interconnectedness of all things. 
And it said, and your karma, in some sense, determines where you'll be born. So if you harm people or hurt people or hurt beings, that you'll end up being born in one of the lower realms, in a hell realm, let's say. Or if you just indulge the instincts during your life, you might end up being reborn in an animal realm. Or if you're kind and giving, that you'll, then it said you'll be reborn in one of the upper realms, one of the higher realms, or a human realm, which is considered an, an upper realm. And these realms are understood within Buddhist cosmology to be real places. Really, that there's really hell realms, there's really animal realms, there's really different realms where beings live, where beings live out different lives, different lifespans with different bodies, like the animal realm, for example. You might be born, you might not end up with a human body, you might end up with the body of a squirrel, or a spider, or a parakeet, or a mole, or a shark. I mean, this would be this would be a be, being born in the animal realm. And in, in the Buddhist countries, this is just a given, right? You know, reincarnation and rebirth are a given. Here, it's not such a given, and you don't have to buy this or believe this particularly. But there's another way that we can use this cosmology to understand that these are also states of mind, these are states of experience that we may be born into um, in, one, in, in a day. We may cycle through within a number of hours. We may end up in a hell realm for a day and a half. And then all of a sudden it starts to relax. And then things get really good. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in a heaven realm. We're really happy. And everything's going our way. And it's easy and light and Relaxed, and then we might remember that we didn't do our taxes and they're overdue. And then we might drop into the human realm a little more. We might drop further into some other realm. That they, and I'll speak to these a little more directly as we go through this. Um, it's, it can actually be a very helpful way to begin to understand our own hearts and minds to, to begin to recognize the different states of experience we find ourselves in. One, in order to not take it quite so personally, to see that these are, these are states of being that we fall into. These are states of experience that actually happen over and over again as part of our experience. And also to see that there's the possibility for awakening actually in each state. And I'll also speak to that as we go. Partly, and it's not, it's not on this tanka, but often when you see the wheel of life, there will be a little Buddha in each, in each realm. And that Buddha will represent the teaching that's needed in that realm to awaken. And so I'll speak to that, even though the Buddha's not in this one. Although there are Buddhas all around, which harbinger the possibility for awakening always. One of the important understandings about this possibility, about that the Buddha is present or the Bodhisattva, some form of awakening is present in each realm, is the understanding that samsara and nirvana are not separate. That 
the realm of suffering and the realm of freedom are not actually separate places. That they're always to be found here. They're always to be found now. That freedom is always possible now within our suffering. I think it's very important to begin to consider this possibility that samsara, the world of suffering, and nirvana, the world of freedom, are not actually separate. That the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths really is, we could think of as a template for that awakening. That there is suffering, that there is a cause to suffering, and there is freedom from suffering, and there's a path or skillful means that lead to freedom. That they're all together. They're not really separate. That we can't find freedom without beginning to understand suffering. We can't find freedom without being able to start to let go of the cause of suffering. We won't find freedom without understanding that our whole life is a vehicle for finding that freedom. That the Four Noble Truths, you can't just take one out from the rest. They're all connected. That seeing suffering is the beginning of freedom. Seeing our dis-ease, seeing our contractedness, seeing our fear, seeing, seeing what it's like to be in a hell realm, seeing our anger and our... Um, our um, attachment to the various states of mind that come through, seeing our hunger, our need, our our belief that something's going to fill us from the outside, that something from somewhere else, if we get it, then we'll be okay. To see our habit of always going for comfort or safety or security or the familiar will be what what makes us okay, or see our um, attachment to certain states of comfort, certain states of um, um, pleasure, certain states of, um, I'm trying to describe, I mean the heaven realms are so heavenly, it's like we actually don't get there enough. We We should get there a little more would be okay see what that attachment is like. The bliss or ecstasy. Um, And that as we begin to inhabit and illuminate these different realms of existence, these different um, aspects of the human experience, that it's our, our presence and our mindfulness that begins to awaken us within those states begins to transform or transmute those states so that we see that samsara and nirvana are not separate. The personality, the ego itself, is based on a kind of self-estrangement. That we actually, it said, that we don't inhabit these states consciously when they come. We're mostly, especially with the hell realms, we're an aversion to them. We're afraid of them. We want to deny them. We think there's something wrong with us if they're happening. Or the heaven realms, when they come, we attach to them. We want to keep them. We think, oh, that's what we just need to be like that all the time. We don't find our ground in the fluidity of emptiness, in the fluidity of the way reality actually is, that it's unfolding and it's dynamic 
and it's um, ungraspable and unconcretizable. Um, Even your reality right now, whatever's happening right now, is part of that fluidity, the, the truth of the way things are. Not our idea about how it's supposed to be, or not our impulse to try to um, reify reality, concretize it, um, fixate it, fixate ourselves or other people or the unfoldment that's here right now. And so we often will be able to recognize um, suffering actually by paying attention to our aliveness, paying attention to the dynamic or dynamism of being alive, the humanness of being in a body, that the body will actually hold the tension, hold the tightness or the contractedness. There's a way we can even think about the way the sense of self is experienced is through a contractedness in the body. And as we begin to open or accept or relax um, or, or uh, embrace all of this, this whole universe that expresses itself through us quite naturally, that we will be able to relax or open to accept what's been denied or cut off, feared, and then the need to maintain that kind of um, rigid self-consciousness can fall away quite naturally. That there can be a self-liberation that happens through mindfulness, through our awareness, through our presence, in every realm of existence. So I'll start just by saying a little bit about each realm. The Brahma realm, the God realm. Brahma was the great god in India, still the god of Hinduism, Brahma. And this is a realm of bliss, rapture, enjoyment, pleasure, ease, delight. The, it's said that the beings in this realm have bodies of light or of nectar or of aroma. You know, they're like flowers. It's like when you smell a flower and you get that hit, that's, that's a little taste of the God realm. Or if you have a certain kind of drink, you know, they make those drinks now that are like, they taste so good. Um, you know, they're like, they're like nectars. Or I ate, I had dinner once, and somebody took me to dinner a few years ago at a place called, somebody helped me, it was a raw foods restaurant in Marin. What? It wasn't gratitude, but it was, it was a little upscale from gratitude. Roxanne's. It's like very expensive raw foods. It's okay. Gratitude's close, really. Pardon? Okay. Okay. So when I went to, to Roxanne's, it was like being in a god realm. Everything was like nectar. The, the, these weird drinks they had in the food. It was just... And, and you could feel, actually, the four of us just got incredibly high 
eating at Roxanne's. I actually gotten gotten off to it gratitude. It's not it's not quite the same, but it's it's good. I I actually talked about cafe gratitude in Holland in a talk uh, about a month ago, and the Dutch were really interested in it. They, they were go, they were asking about the website. So so the um, the the Brahma realm is characterized by it's a it's a place of sensual bliss and gratification. You could think of like your best orgasm ever, you know, or your best whatever the best of life, the absolute most delicious or beautiful or delightful or pleasurable. That's when we're beginning to touch the God realms, the realm of aesthetic pleasure and joy. And as I said, the beings have these bodies of light or of aroma and they basically they don't get sick and they live for, you know, a thousand years. And um, part of what it's characterized, part of the way we can understand it is that sense of when our, when our sense of self dissolves and we just feel free, open, relaxed, at ease, that's a little bit the God realm. And the Bodhisattva in that realm is carrying a lute and playing music because he's using a skillful means that will speak to people on that level. And he's trying to awaken them with the music of the Dharma, to awaken them to the Buddha's teaching. Because they're having such a good time that they could care less about the Buddha's teaching. It's too good. And this is part of the suffering on the, on the um, God realm, is they actually don't notice that things are impermanent because it's so good for so long that they don't have the impulse to practice. And one of the places you'll find this in the meditative practice is in the absorptions, is in the jhanas. If you do intense concentration practice and you start to go into these levels of rapture or um, bliss or pleasure or certain levels of equanimity, and then these are the form jhanas, these are the jhanas that really include the body, or then there's levels, states of consciousness that keep getting more refined and you, you actually can feel it. Each time you move into the higher state of consciousness, it's like more refined and even more pleasurable. And I, I've done a little bit of this practice, and I remember when, when I went into the fourth jhana the first time, I was talking with the teacher, and I was actually doing phone interviews, and I said, oh, I don't want to go into any of those other yucky jhanas anymore. And I just want to stay in this jhana now because each one gets more and more pleasurable and refined. And the, and the four uh, upper jhanas are called form, literally formless jhanas because the whole sense of body and physicality falls away. And then the pleasure there is boundless. It's boundless, uh, infinite space, infinite consciousness, etc., etc. And these are the, the God realms, the heaven realms. They're, Sometimes you might, they used to, in the 70s, they used to talk about peak experiences. And when I think of a place of the God realm, I think a little bit of Esalen, if you've ever been to Esalen. Then there's the realm of what's called the Titans or the jealous gods. And these are gods who have a lot of powers. They have a lot of capacity. They get things, they get to the fruits of being a god. 
They make things have, they use their intelligence and their creativity and their capacities and their power and they get the best of this and the best of that and they're very, um, but they're very um, competitive. They're competitive. So you'll see actually up here they show them with arrows, shooting arrows at one another and shooting arrows at the humans too because they're always working really hard to maintain their status. Have you ever noticed when you get things really good and then you're working really, you don't want anybody else to get there. You, you're there and if they get there then they're going to be better. It's a little bit gets into that state of mind. Um, they're always looking for the fruits of the God realm, doing whatever they can and so they're a little bit driven by that. And the Bodhisattva in this realm is carrying the sword of discriminating awareness, a sword of wisdom, that, and it's cutting through their intention, which is to use their capacities to get more and to have more, and trying to awaken them to use their capacities in the service of realization, of liberation. And when I think about where to look for this, couple places. Look at the CEOs of corporations. Really, as, as the realm of the, of the competitive gods or the titans. And you know, they often, there used to be this phrase, I haven't heard it so much, but they used to talk about the titans of industry in capitalism. You know, Rockefeller or Henry Ford, these were the titans of industry. And they lived as gods, you know, and they controlled a lot and they made a lot happen. Or the other place we could look is in politics. You know, the Washington D.C. would be a really great place to see what that this mind state is like. A lot of power, a lot of capacity to make things happen, a lot of competition, jealousy, undercutting, watching out, having to maintain your station. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna save the human realm for last. So I'm gonna jump now to the lower realms, starting with the animal realm and which is part of our own experience, clearly. We, we are part animal, or we're totally animal, but we're also more than animal in this sense. We're not just placed in the animal realm. But the animal realm is characterized by the orientation towards pleasure, towards immediate gratification and security. And all you have to do is watch animals, wild animals, watch birds, when you come near them. Watch lizards when you come near them. Watch the deer when you come near. What happens? The first thing is scrambling for safety. Always concerned about safety. It's always, it's survival is the baseline in the animal realm. So safety, security, gratification, being fed, taking care of surviving, and then some pleasure, right? Procreative pleasures. Um, you know, a little bit of lying around, but if anybody comes, if anything comes, any other animal comes, immediately there's a concern about security. There's the, the driven by the instincts of procreation, sexuality, fear, safety. And the bodhisattva in this realm is bringing... Um, reflecting or, or encouraging 
the awakening of our intelligence, the intelligence and the capacity for delayed gratification, for a more mature or, or a way of being alive that's not simply driven by instincts, our reflective capacities. And you can, again, important to reflect on these, not just as states somewhere else, but states that we cycle through. You ever notice how when you're driven by security, if you don't have any money, that's, that's primary. Or for many people, even when they have money, still the sense of security isn't there and they're always driven by it. Or always needing to just feel safe. Find safety, find security. Some people will always orient towards what's familiar because it's safe. So the animal realm, the realm of the hungry ghosts. How many people know this realm? At least a few. This is a very familiar realm, probably for all of us. In the, in the cosmology, this is characterized, the hungry ghosts have phantom-like bodies with huge bellies, long necks, and teeny mouths and they can never satisfy their need or their want. And they're always trying to satisfy themselves. And there's always an emptiness that they're trying to satisfy. And I think for many of us, if not most of us, we know that emptiness that we're trying to satisfy, whether it's through drugs or food or sex or work or, or the Dharma even. We're all looking, there's some emptiness not a, this is not Buddhist emptiness. This is what we might call deficient emptiness. This is an emptiness where we, our value or our well-being is dependent on getting something from the outside. And it's actually very common, very common, to feel that, to know that. Insatiable longing, insatiable wanting. And maybe we could look at Las Vegas, right? I mean, the, 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 the trying to fill something through gambling or through drinking or through sex. I mean, that, that town is built on longing, on the promise that we'll get it from the outside, and it never happens. And the Bodhisattva in this realm carries a bowl, and the bowl carries true nourishment and the true nourishment is the nourishment of the Dharma, of the teachings of, of awakening. And then the lower realms, the hell realms, and the images here, they're pretty, this isn't, sometimes they're really gross. These are pretty, pretty low-key in general. Are actually a lot like Western hell. You know, people being boiled in oil or people being stabbed or gutted or choked or dismembered or freezing or starving or being punished in some way. And we've all cycled through hell realms when we're burning with rage or we're terrified by paranoia, we're obsessed by it, or we're tortured by anxiety at times. These are the hell realms in Buddhism. 
not someplace somewhere far away, but actually part of the human experience. And if we want to look in concretely in our world, all we have to look is almost any war zone, Dafar or, or Iraq or you know anywhere where people are afraid and aggressive in that way, where they really believe that's that's the only way to live is kill or be killed. And the Bodhisattva in this realm holds a mirror or a candle signifying the light of awareness, that awareness is needed here. Awareness to see what's actually happening so we can begin to see it without acting on it. We can begin to see the truth of this state that comes naturally to human beings. Now the human realm, the human realm, this, this realm, this realm that we find ourselves in, that's characterized by this human body, this is the realm that's um, highlighted by the quest for existential freedom and relief, release. That this is a very specific human movement for freedom, for awakening that we have this capacity, not only do we embody all these other states, but we have this capacity to self-reflect and to awaken. And it's characterized by, the, by a kind of existential quest or movement. And it's the movement from inauthenticity to authenticity or alienation to a sense of acceptance and oneness or unification to the movement from confusion to awakeness. And the fundamental question in this realm is, who are you? Who are you, really? Who are you beyond the conventional ideas of who you are? Who are you beyond your name or beyond the, the ideas, the roles that you take? Whether it's CEO or rebel, whether it's you know teacher or student, whether it's uh, husband or wife or partner or lover or celibate, or whatever roles you take, who are you beyond the ideas, the conceptualization? Who are you in? What is the lived experience? What is the aliveness that's sitting here right now that's listening to these words, that's speaking these words? It's the same aliveness. What is that? The search for reality, for the truth, for the Dharma, for wholeness, however, for liberation, for freedom, however you might talk about it, how whatever language is the expression of your heart seeking of this existential reality. And the human realm is considered unique among all the realms because it's considered the optimal realm. Even though awakening is possible in each realm, this is the optimal realm for awakening. And it's optimal because of two things. It's optimal because in the hell realms, there's too much suffering. In the lower realms, it's too much suffering, too much fear. In the upper realms, it's too good. It's just too good. 
You know, it's like, why bother? I'd rather just hang out with my nectars or doing all these things that are so accomplished. But the human realm is not too good. It's good enough, but it's not too good. It's, it has enough suffering that we're motivated to seek freedom. But it doesn't have too much suffering. It, there's, a ba- there's enough balance, there's a possibility of enough balance so that we seek awakening. The other part that's important that that's characterizes the human realm is about lifespan. That it's enough of a lifespan, approximately they'll say a hundred years in the text, but it's not too much. It's not a thousand or eons like might be in the, some of the God realms where it's just who cares and it's, you know, it's so long you don't even think about dying. Here, you know, even here we can, we can start thinking about dying pretty young. Often teenagers think about it, actually. Sometimes, as Carl Jung used to say, by 35, people start to see, oh, there's something that's called the end that's coming. Even if it's 50 years or 60 years away, there's some way, by 30 or 5 or 40, people start to see, I'm not going to live forever. They start to get a glimpse. And as that each year goes on, it becomes a little more real, a little more real. However old we are, it becomes a little more real that this life is temporal and that we start to turn towards wisdom, towards awakening. And the Bodhisattva in the human realm is the historical Buddha, Gautama Siddhartha. And he symbolizes the maturation of human potential. The maturation of human potential our birthright, our possibility as human beings to realize our Buddha nature, our true nature. And so in this way, in this way, human birth is highly valued in Buddhism. It's talked about in the in the old text, it's talked about this way. Monks, monks and nuns, the Buddha speaking to his disciples, suppose that this great earth were totally covered with water. So this is a it's a really powerful image the Buddha uses. The whole earth is covered with water, and a man or woman were to toss a wooden yoke, like a life preserver with a single hole there and a wind from the east would push it west and a wind from the west would push it east and a wind from the north would push it south and a wind from the south would push it north and suppose a blind sea turtle were there and it would and the blind sea turtle would come to the surface once every hundred years now what do you think would that blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years stick his neck into the yoke with a single hole? What do you think? The whole world's covered with water. There's this one life preserver out there. There's a blind sea turtle. He's anywhere. He comes up once every hundred years. Is he going to put his head through that? Monks, nuns? Not very likely. Not very likely. And the Buddha, because the monks and nuns were also quiet, the Buddha answered himself. He said, 
it would it would be sheer coincidence. Oh no, excuse me. They do answer. They say it would be sheer coincidence, Lord, that the blind sea turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years would stick his neck through the yoke with a single hole. And the Buddha says, likewise, it is likewise a sheer coincidence that one obtains a human birth. And one of the, and this is one of the ways we might consider this is how much we take our birth, our aliveness for granted. Because we're so used to it, right? We've been alive for what? You know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. We just start to take it for granted. And one of the beauties of mindfulness when mindfulness deepens, ripens, is that we don't take anything for granted. We start to be able to perceive the living reality that's here now beyond our habit of mind. We begin to see things as they are in reality. We begin to experience reality as it is, not as a concept, not as a historical construct, not as a belief, not as an opinion not as a memory, but the aliveness that's here now. And so the Buddha says it's sheer coincidence that one obtains a human birth. And likewise, it is sheer coincidence that there's a teacher and teachings. And it's sheer coincidence that there's a doctrine and discipline that's been expounded by a Buddha. And now this human state has been obtained. Therefore, your duty is to contemplate this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the path that leads to the end of suffering. And so what the Buddha says here, what he's emphasizing here, is encouraging us to really pay attention to how valuable our human birth is, how rare it may be. Even if it only happens once, even if you don't believe in reincarnation or lives, even that, then it's even more rare. It's only going to happen this one time. But there is this possibility for awakening, for freedom, for liberation. The Dalai Lama, he said it this way, he said, awareness of impermanence is encouraged so that when it is coupled with our appreciation of the enormous potential of human existence, it will give us a sense of urgency that I must use every precious moment to awaken. And for us as lay people, this is our practice. That we want to begin to look at how is it to use every moment, every part of our lives as lay people, as householders, engaged in the world, work, relationship, family, community, politics, What's the through line there in all of those? What's the through line? Our body, our mind, our aliveness in each moment. To begin to start to pay attention to the living reality, whether we're listening or speaking, whether we're working, whether we're eating, whether we're building or making love, whether we're scared or hungry, whether we're eating at gratitude or at home, 
to begin to bring mindfulness of the body, the presence, the wakefulness into each moment of our lives. And so, one of the phrases that you'll find in Buddhism, a really beautiful phrase, is called precious human birth. That it's precious actually to be alive. And really, Buddhism values all sentient life, not just human life. It values the life of the insects or of the creatures of the ground or the sea or the air values all life but there's something particular because of where human life is placed in the Buddhist cosmology and the Buddhist understanding of the universe that the human life is considered very precious and actually rare that we don't know we don't know what will happen after we die we don't know what happens But right now we know that we're alive in this form and we have this capacity to reflect, to contemplate, to practice, and to mature, to awaken, to discover our true nature. Mindfulness can begin to tap the truth of this preciousness so that we don't fall asleep, so we don't fall into a trance, so we don't end up dying wishing we would have lived. That we don't end up in the end of our life saying, I'm sorry that my heart closed to the world, to myself, to people to this magical existence, this realm, this magical realm that we live in called the human realm. Part of the capacity of mindfulness to um, uh, re-enliven us out of that trance is to begin to value each moment to value human life, to see that our value is not based on what we do. Our value is ontological, that there's something precious that sits here right now, just sitting here, it's precious. That the nature of human consciousness and its capacity for liberation, freedom, enlightenment is precious. The capacity for what's called the sure heart's release is precious. And so this body, this human form, becomes the vehicle for awakening. This becomes the vehicle through which awakening emerges. I can't tell if that's a, the static is a confirmation of what I'm saying or it's <laughs> telling me I'm a little off track. The word vehicle, the word vehicles, I like the word vehicle when I think about the body. The body is vehicle. A vehicle is a medium through which something is transmitted, expressed, and or accomplished. This human form is the medium through which awakening is transmitted, expressed, 
developed, accomplished. It's the instrument. It becomes a very fine instrument as we practice mindfulness to study suffering and freedom. To, stu- to study when we're caught or held or contracted in one of these realms or when there's something beyond the realm, beyond the particulars of our experience. An awareness, a knowing that may know all these realms but is not bound by those realms. A freedom that's possible for us through this human form. And so the body becomes the vehicle for awakening, it becomes the means or the conduit in which to study, the instrument in which we fine-tune, and then it becomes the expression of awakening itself. In Zen, the image of, is of going to the mountaintop, and the mountaintop symbolizes awakening. And that, but that's considered really the beginning of the path. And then you come down from the mountain and, and return to the marketplace with gift-bestowing hands. And it's the embodiment of awakening, the embodiment of freedom. The imbo- it's, I like to think of it these days as selfless embodiment. Selfless embodiment. Where we're not contracted to a self-consciousness or a small sense of self or a, or a presence uh, that's based on an idea and a belief and a history but something that's free of all of that. And the Buddha described over and over again this possibility for mindfulness and mindfulness of the body quite specifically. He said, One thing, monks and nuns, if developed and frequently practiced, leads to a deep stirring of the heart and mind, to great benefit, to security from toil, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a happy abiding in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and deliverance. Deliverance actually literally means liberation. What is this one thing? It is the mindful contemplation of the body, this human form, this human existence, this body that's sitting right here, right now, tired, achy, sleepy, awake, energized, not energized. It's all alive. Feel the aliveness that sits here right now. This aliveness that came quite magically and will actually leave quite magically. If you've ever been around birth and death, it's startling to see how similar they actually are birth and death, the magical, the precious quality of birth and actually the precious, amazing quality of death that we're alive for a while and then something happens and then the body is not alive. I'll end with a poem from Ananda. Ananda was the attendant of the Buddha. He was his cousin. He was his attendant the last 20 years. He loved the Buddha dearly. When the Buddha dies, Ananda's bereft. He's grieving the Buddha. And he's a little bit lost. And he talks, he's, he's writes this poem about his experience. He says, All the directions are obscure. 
the teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. He falls a little bit into one of the hell realms. The grief, the sorrow, the lostness. And then as he inhabits that, he comes to a different understanding. And he writes, for one whose friend, the Buddha he's talking about, one whose friend has passed away, for one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. There is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. It's quite significant that Ananda here is comparing mindfulness of the tape recorder. That Ananda here is comparing mindfulness of the body with the Buddha. That's, that's quite a significant, quite a strong image. That when one's friend, one teacher is gone, there's nothing that can compare to mindfulness of the body. Our teacher is actually right here. We don't have to look so far away. It's good to get teachings, but our teacher is sitting right in your seat. This aliveness, this energy, this capacity to pay attention to this human form, to this precious human birth, becomes the vehicle for awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.